Good evening and happy Pride, everyone. Welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. We've been celebrating Pride all month here on Outbeat Radio, and we're continuing tonight with my special guest, Eric Marcus. He's an accomplished author and LGBT historian whose latest project is just amazing. He's created an online resource with audio recordings of all of his interviews from some famous and not-so-famous LGBT people who have contributed to our history. Eric's with us tonight to talk about his work and this new project. It's Pride Sunday, and we're celebrating with you. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 24th, 2018. This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of June 24th, 2018. This week marks 49 years since the infamous riots took place at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, an event that made national headlines and today is recognized as the beginning of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. This wasn't the first riot of its kind, though. In August of 1966, a similar upheaval took place at Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco, but the news media largely ignored the event. The historic events at Stonewall have been compared to other major civil rights events, including the march across the bridge in Selma, Alabama. The night was June 28, 1969. The swinging 60s were a time of public revolt and political action. Many marginalized groups were making great strides. Many, except for one. In many states, people could be incarcerated as a sexual psychopath the minute it was known you were homosexual. You had no legitimate right to really even exist as gay people. So there was no place where you could be sure at the beginning of the night that you wouldn't suffer an attack during the night. During that period, um, uh, beating up gays was a national sport. It was actually against the law to serve an open homosexual at a bar. It was against the law. Gay New Yorkers could at least gather at the Stonewall Inn. It was a seedy bar. It was run by the mafia. They only opened it to make money for off of gay people, to exploit gay people. It was the best bar at the time. Police raids on Stonewall were often and routine until one night. The angry crowd pelted the police with bottles and rocks. And as we kept pushing them backwards, they were laughing nervously, but it seemed to get more serious, and we pushed them back into the bar. The police were stunned. I mean, those were the riot police at a gay bar, unheard of. There were thousands of people involved out in the streets opposing the police. Nothing like that had ever happened before. From the fighting, a movement was born. If it had just been those nights of uh, rioting and, and outrage, and nothing followed it, um, nothing would have changed. A year after the riots, the group marked the occasion with a march. We decided that the march should start around Stonewall on Christopher Street and march up to Central Park. We had threats. We were scared. And with those first steps, the modern Pride Parade began. In 2016, President Obama designated the Stonewall Inn a national landmark. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. I love to change.
If you've done any reading at all about LGBTQ history or read the autobiographies of some famous gay athletes like Greg Louganis or Robbie Rogers, then you've read the work of Eric Marcus. He's a prolific writer who has amassed an amazing collection of recorded interviews with some incredible gay icons and some not-so-famous pieces of our history. He's here to share more about his work and his latest website, makinggayhistory.com. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Delighted to be with you. Well, it's my pleasure. I've been a fan for a really long time. But for our listeners who are not familiar with your work, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. And where did your passion for writing and LGBT history come from? It was all accidental. Um, I started out planning to be um, an urban planner or an architect. Um, And that's how I first got into writing, writing about architecture. But buildings uh, were boring to me, it turned out. And what most interested me was writing about people. So when I was in graduate school um, at Columbia studying journalism, I wrote an article about nuns at St. Vincent's Hospital who counseled men whose partners died from AIDS. Um, That was in 1984. And that was early in the crisis, so there were only a few thousand people who had died up to that point. And, and I was really struck by, um, by the story, for one thing, but also how meaningful and what a charge I got out of as a journalist writing about people as opposed to buildings. Um, so that was, that was the beginning, but I, I still didn't intend, intend to write. I went to work for a, a politician and then worked for a magazine. Um, what I really wanted was to work in television news. But at a dinner conversation with, uh, with my then partner, we were a young couple. We've been together three years, and the other couple were together three years as well. And we got into a conversation about what couples do. We're two male couples who washes the dishes, um, who does the laundry, life insurance, because that was a big deal at the time for people who, uh, because of the AIDS crisis. Sure. Um, and it was very difficult to get life insurance. Um, so we talked about all those things, and I said, gee, I wonder if there's a book out there on, that su- uh, on the subject. And one of the guys across the table said, um, I don't think there is, but if you're interested in doing a book like that, I know people in publishing. To make a long story short, that conversation led to my first book, The Male Couple's Guide, and um, I wasn't even that out at that point, <laughs> so I had to deal with, with being a very public person um, when I had not been, uh, because the book was published and, and, and it got a lot of attention. One of the big um, challenges uh, before the book was published was, was I going to tell my grandmother that I was gay? Mm. Uh, and my family was against it. I said that I would much rather she hear it from me than find out from an interview on television. And everyone in the family said, oh, you know, no one's gonna, when are you going to be on television? Well, I was on a lot, of, a lot of television, and it was a good thing I told my grandmother about the book. Um, but then after that book, I went to work for Good Morning America and then CBS News. And it was then that I got a call from an editor at Harper & Row, a company now called HarperCollins, who asked me if I'd be interested in writing an oral history book about the gay civil rights movement, what was then called the gay civil rights movement. And I said, um, why me? I don't have any background in history. I'm not an academic. And he said, I'm looking for somebody who's fresh to the subject. I don't want an academic. I want a popular book. And I was so fresh to the subject that I didn't know that there was any history, uh, uh, any movement history prior to the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. Um, so I took on the challenge. It was pretty clear to me at that point that my options at CBS weren't great. I'd met with an executive there to ask her if they would ever put um, an openly gay person 
on camera as a news person for national news at CBS, which is really what I wanted to do. And after after pressing and not getting a clear answer, I finally said, I just need a yes or no answer so I can plan my life. And she said, no, we won't. Hmm. So I took the option of writing a proposal as I was invited to for this book, which became Making History, later in a second edition called Making Gay History. And for much of my career after that, I've spent writing books. Um, this later, latest chapter of revisiting my archive of 100 interviews that I conducted for for the original book and a subsequent new edition uh, that was published in 2002, mining this archive was not something I ever expected to do. Um, I, I finished what I called my gay work a long time ago and turned over my archive to the New York Public Library with an agreement that they digitized my whole collection with an understanding that the collection might be used by scholars or students one day. Um, and it turned out I'm the one who gets to mine it for this podcast, which has been far more successful than I could have ever imagined. Well, yes, and I can tell you it's an amazing resource for students in new innovative programs like LGBT studies, which I get the privilege of teaching. I can tell you that being able to go and listen to some of those interviews has been a, a, just a gift to students. There was no such thing when, when Making History was originally published. Um, I battled with the publisher to get written on the back of the book. You see on, on all books, there's cataloging information, instructing bookstores and libraries how to catalog, how, where to put a book on a shelf. And the first edition, it's, it said Gay Studies. And for the second edition, 10 years later, I argued with them to get them to write American History slash Gay Studies. And I considered it a part, a legitimate part of American history. It seemed no one else did. And I... I um, I got the proof of the jacket of the second edition, and it said American History slash Case Studies on the back. And the proof is the final before it's actually printed. And when the book was published, American History was gone. Um, and no one would fess up at, at HarperCollins uh, regarding who removed that. So for me, it's so gratifying to see that this is now considered a legitimate, legitimate area of study that is part of American history as it's always been. Um, and now people are teaching it, like you. Thrilling to me. Yes, well, it really is an honor uh, to teach it. And uh, it's great to have resources like those that you've provided to make it more real for the students. So I want to talk about the first book that I read of yours. It's the book titled, Is It a Choice? And when I came out, uh, as most of the listeners know here, it was pretty late in life, and I did a lot of reading like so many people do, and I stumbled across that book, and I thought, my God, this is the perfect book to share with my parents. It addressed every single question that I knew that they would have. And so I bought them each a copy, and I sent it to them with a note that said, here's a book for you to read, and consider it an owner's manual for your gay son. Um, it really made a huge difference for them and for me. Well, oh, I'm so, it's so gratifying to hear that because that's what I had intended the book to be. I wrote it thinking this is the book that I wished had been on the shelves when I was a young person growing up so that I didn't have to answer all the questions. And also people are afraid to ask a lot of questions. And it's all there in the book. Any question, and I mean any question you could ask, um, the stupidest questions possible, the questions you didn't think to ask, even, didn't, didn't even think to ask, it's, it's all in that book. I haven't updated that book in quite a while now, so it's a little outdated. Um, and now people find all kinds of information online. And I did a subsequent book called What If, um, and it's uh, questions and answers about gay and lesbian people. And that's a teen version of the book. So that's, that's the one that, that most young people now find in the library. Uh, and that was my goal all along with the books I've written, to provide the books that I wished had been there so that a, younger, a new generation wouldn't have to suffer through the ignorance that I had to, to plow through, and my family as well. 
Yeah, I think you're right. A lot has changed, and it's certainly easier in some parts of this country to be out and to come out. There's certainly a lot more role models to look at. But, you know, for a lot of people, and I know hearing from my own students, it's still really difficult. And while you can find a lot of information on the Internet, your book provides it all in one place. It's all in one place, and I also use my own story as a thread so that you hear about the author's struggle. It's not just a dispassionate book. It's uh, it's, a, it's about my my experience as well. Um, uh, and now with with um, uh, with all the opportunities that are out there to find things online, um, it, it isn't organized in a way that that a book is, um, where you can find all the information in one place and it flows with a narrative. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's in its third edition now. So another edition since the copy that I first bought. And it's still available, right? Yeah, yeah, it's still in print, remarkably. Awesome. Well, you wrote a couple of books for couples, the first being The Male Couple's Guide. And you told us that you got a lot of the information from talking with friends. But obviously, you did some research as well. And so through your experience in writing those books, talk about some of the things that you learned personally. Oh, I learned everything that one needs to learn about having a relationship. Um, but I really should have read the book more closely because I got myself in a lot of trouble um, in my relation. My well, in, in all the relationships I've had, I, I was in one. Uh, I was in a long-term relationship nine years that lasted nine years, and then um, I've been in a second relationship now for 24 years. Um, I didn't know as much as I thought I knew when I did the first book. I was very good at the practical aspects of how to organize one's relationship, and I interviewed lots of people about what their experiences were and then compiled it in a book. The second book uh, was a book called Together Forever, uh, Gay and Lesbian Couples Share Their Secrets for Lasting Happiness, Um, although the second edition, I changed the subtitles to Finding a Man, Making a Home, Building a Life. or that may have been that. Well, actually, that was the subtitle for the male couples guide. It's awful when you start confusing your own titles. Um, but with the long-lasting couples book, um, I interviewed uh, 40 couples, 20 male, 20 female, who've been together nine to 50 years. They were self-described happy couples, and I couldn't have been more fortunate to sit down with all of these couples to ask them questions about their relationships, um, and then compile what I learned from them in a book. And there are no real secrets to a relationship. Communication is one of the key aspects of it. Um, and, and, you know, there was actually one thing that all of these couples had in common, and that was a willingness to get help when they needed it, mm. um, outside help, with a therapist, with a, with a religious um, leader, somebody to help them sort out issues when they got, in, got into struggles that they couldn't sort out themselves. Mm. Well, communication is a two-way street, though, right? I mean, it's about being able to express what you need but it's really also about listening and being able to truly hear what that other person is saying. Yeah, and it's sometimes very hard to listen, and it can also be very hard to say what you need to say. There are often circumstances where it's scary. You don't know how your partner's going to respond, or you do something you're ashamed of and you don't want anyone to know, but you need to share it with your partner. Um, it's yeah, the, the more I've learned about being in a relationship, the more I realize I didn't know. Um, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a cliche to say so. Um, I think I could write a, more, a far more informed book at this stage of life, although I think there's value in, in, in what I share with readers in both of those books. Certainly. And society's changed its views about our relationships. 
When you oh, look my at God. You when I first wrote The Male Couple's Guide, the original subtitle was something to the effect about, about how, um, how, how to have a relationship in a world where everyone says it can't possibly last. I grew up with the expectation that, that it was next to impossible to have a long-term relationship. I remember reading a, a book called Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. And the what I read there, this is in the seventies, said that gay men uh, didn't have relationships. That that what I could expect was um, furtive relationships and and sex in parks and bushes. Mm. Um, and I hasten to add because one of my friends said to me recently, "What's wrong with sex in bushes?" <laughs> Um, I said, nothing's wrong with that, but that wasn't the life I wanted. Uh, and I grew up in a world where everyone said it couldn't possibly last. So part of the, the trouble I got into in, in um, my uh, and how I looked at relationships was I was determined to prove the naysayers wrong. Um, and uh, it's never a good idea to, to have a relationship just to prove someone wrong. Each relationship is, is special and different, and you need to pay attention to your partner. As you said, you need to listen. Right, right. Well, your book, Together Forever, came out in 1998, about seven years before marriage equality was realized across the country. How do you think the institution of marriage has changed same-sex relationships? Do you think that it's provided strength and some endurance for those relationships? I think it's different for everyone, and it's different generationally. For the couples I know who've been together a long time, um, 10, or actually 20, 30 years, who've gotten married since marriage equality became possible, or since marriage equality uh, passed, um, or was decided, it's um, a confirmation of what already existed. It's a, it, it, I've heard couples talk about how it just solidified what they had. For young couples who've grown up in a world where this is just how it is, it's, I hear people saying things that are, I hear gay couples saying the kinds of things that straight couples say about, about marriage. It's, it's very much the same. Um, so I think it's, it's different for everyone, but it makes a huge difference in terms of how the world views us, and then that has an impact on the relationships themselves. I know in my own family that um, with the coming of marriage equality, that everyone could understand what that meant. People know what marriage means. They know what that kind of commitment means. And even when my partner and I had a commitment ceremony uh, 21 years ago, nearly 22, um, that was something familiar to my loved ones. And even for the ones who were vaguely anti-gay or just neutral, participating in that ceremony, seeing what it meant for us to commit to each other, made a difference in their eyes, and they treated us differently. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's a very, it's very complex, um, and it's also created some challenges for people. I know male couples for whom um, this has been a, a problem. Uh, for example, they've never discussed their finances with each other over the course of 20 or 30 years. And if they get legally married, they have to talk to each other about their finances. Right. Um, and sometimes people have philosophical differences. I've met couples where one wanted to get married and the other didn't. So it's, it's, it cuts both ways. Yeah, it does. That's for sure. So let's talk about coming out. Um, you've written about coming out and then the coming out process in a number of your books. And I would imagine from your perspective that too has changed in some ways, though the struggles for many seem to be what they always have been. Uh, give us a sense of what you think. How is it different today? You know, I, I hear from kids uh, for whom it's, it's a very similar struggle. Even if they think their parents won't reject them, they're still scared to death. Uh, I also hear from kids in schools who are scared of people finding out or people find out, and then it's not a good thing. It is different because the world is much more accepting 
in a very broad and general way. Um, it doesn't mean that your school or your community will be accepting or your parents. So it's different for everyone. But it has changed. People know um, what a gay person is or a lesbian or even a trans person, although that's something new to most people, or a bisexual person. So there's, there's greater understanding. It isn't like when I came out to my mother who knew virtually nothing about homosexuality and didn't know gay people and didn't see gay people on television and there was no Ellen and no RuPaul. So uh, the, the path has been worn a bit more over the years by people who've come out. But for, the, for, the, for individuals, there's often still a struggle. Um, mm -hmm. So in that way, in that way, it's still there. And I still find I have to come out sometimes. Um, my partner and I have been at the grocery store, um, not in Manhattan, but in other places, where we have been asked, oh, are you two brothers? Oh, my goodness. Now, we look nothing alike. Um, he has, he's the, white, I was teasing, he's the whitest man on, on the planet. He has white hair. He has white, white skin. Um, and he's Irish and Austrian. I'm Jewish. I, I have dark hair, mostly dark hair. Um, and we just we both wear glasses, but there's there's something about the way we interact that suggests to someone who might not recognize us as a gay couple that there's a more intimate relationship here than just two guys. Right. And the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, are you two brothers? That happens far less frequently now, but in moments like that, I, I find I tend to get caught off guard. Um, and do I want to, in the middle of a grocery store, say, oh, no, we're partners or we're and we're not legally married, so I can't say he's my husband. Um, I mean, I could, but I always have, I have this lingering fear that's hardwired into my brain at this point, having grown up in a very different world, that if I say something like, oh, he's my partner, we're a couple, that the, that the spotlight will come down on us, that the grocer will announce on the, intercom, on the, on the, on the uh, loudspeaker system, a homosexual couple in aisle three um, buying broccoli. And it's scary, you know, I, it's stupid. I'm going to be 60 years old. You'd think this wouldn't bother me, but, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm 16 years old and a fearful, closeted gay person in moments like that. Oh, I, hate, I hate it, and I hate that, I, that it upsets me or that I think about it. Um, I think it, I, I, I always will, because um, you can't erase the experiences of growing up. Absolutely. So I, I envy young people who grow up in places where they can be out from the first minute and, um, and take a, a same-sex partner to a, to a senior prom, and it's not a big deal, and they don't have to be, um, be homophobic. They don't have to have internalized homophobia to cope with for the rest of their lives. Right, right. Well, that's at least one of the benefits about things getting better in at least some parts of this country. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about some well, of the some great biographies as well. Uh, you um, got a chance to really get to know our listeners are sports fans. You'll certainly recognize these uh, names. Greg Luganis and Rudy Galindo. And then another and then one, Robbie about Rogers, who we actually had on the show and then when most his book came out. About uh, Robbie out to play with Robbie Rogers. He was coming out to play. Wonderful. And he ended up coming up here and talking to some of our high school students and doing just a great interview. And he was just terrific. I mean, he actually came up here to Santa Rosa and spent some time with some of our high school uh, students to talk about his story, and he's really, really quite wonderful. So, talk about how you got to know these guys. 
Um, a lot of interviewing. Um, with Greg, I think I did 60 hours total interviews with Greg. We, I lived at his house in Malibu for a while with him. Um, you have to ask a lot of questions. Greg used to tease me about, you know, it's like, you have more questions still? Um, so you ask questions until there isn't a question to be asked, and you also interview the people around the person you're, whose book you're writing, because they don't have 360-degree perspective on their, their experiences. So with Robbie, I interviewed his sister, I interviewed his mother, I interviewed his father, um, so that I had multiple points of view that he could then write about in his own voice, telling how they perceived a story or filling in details that he couldn't recall. Mm. Um, I did that with Greg also, interviewing his, uh, his mom and his coach, his best friend, um, and I was relentless in my questioning. Um, and for some reason, I'm good at translating or channeling people's voices. Um, when I did my history book, Making History, the original edition had 49 different stories, and they were oral histories. So I wrote in 49 different voices. So maybe that's where I, I learned how to do it. Um, but I somehow I'm able to write in that person's voice, so much so that um, Greg Luganus's best friend said that when she read the book, it was like sitting next to Greg um, on her bed and having him tell her his story. And to me, that is, that's the test. Did I do my job? Did the person whose book I'm writing come across exactly as they are without the intrusion of my voice? Um, that puts limits sometimes on what you can write because I might use a different vocabulary from Greg or Rudy, for example, had a very straightforward way of speaking, very uncomplicated way, very different from how I write in my voice. So at times I would find myself very frustrated not being able to write in, in the language that I write, um, but having to use the, their language, their vocabulary, their, the way they, the cadence of their voice. Huh. That's really interesting. And you know, that makes sense to me. When I met Robbie, I didn't know him before, but when I met him to do the interview and then read his book, I could hear his voice in, in those words, and I just assumed that he wrote it. It was great. When Greg Luganus went on tour with the book, he was very gracious. He always said, um, he said, I dive, he writes. Um, I wouldn't attempt to dive. In fact, um, when I had to know what it looked like, to be on a 10-meter platform. We did this at the Olympic Diving Center um, in uh, Colorado Springs, and I went up to the top of the 10-meter platform uh, with Greg, and he was in his bathing suit. He was going to do some demo drives for the Olympic, uh, dives for the Olympic team, and he, he walked out to the edge like it's nothing, and I crawled out on all fours um, to look over the edge and see what it looked like to, to jump off of what essentially is a four-story building. Um, and the Olympic diving team thought it was, was, very, um, was very funny. Um, so, so I had to do things like that to, um, to be able to inhabit their experiences. Um, and one of the challenges of, of working with an athlete is that a lot of what they do is so innate but for the reader, you have to explain it. Right. So I would have Greg take me through each dive, take apart each dive in minute detail. I did that with Rudy also, with Rudy Galindo, with his skating, um, so that a, a lay reader could understand what they're experiencing inside their bodies. Mm. Um, so that was, it was just fascinating. How often do you get to, get to do that? Absolutely. Well, and all three of those athletes grew up really in a different generation, and their coming out experiences as an athlete were very different. 
What did you see, though, that they shared in common with their coming out experiences, and what was different? You know, I hadn't thought of that, uh, and I've never been asked about that, but you're absolutely right. Greg retired in 1988. Rudy was uh, turned professional in 1996, mm-hmm. and Robbie is a very recent story. What's so different is how they were treated. Um, Robbie was, uh, was never teased as a soccer player. You know, it's also so different because Rudy was out from the word go. He's the kind of kid, he's not a kid anymore, but he was the kind of kid who you just knew was gay from miles away because he um, exhibited the the behaviors, the mannerisms that we associate with a male homosexual. Um, And uh, Rudy had to deal with all kinds of prejudice from the judges, many of whom were gay anyway, but closeted, because they didn't feel he represented the kind of man they wanted to be a winning figure skater. Um, Greg had to deal with uh, sort of ugly teasing from, uh, from, from fellow divers, really ugly teasing. Um, and had to keep secret for a very long time uh, both the fact he was gay and his his status. So each one was different, and they were affected in different ways by the world around them, which changed rapidly over time. So by the time Robbie came out, he had almost universal support um, in a professional sport at a time when he was the only out gay man playing in one of the top five professional sports in the U.S., um, right. There was no one saying, there was no one calling him a fag on his team or other teams. People were very protective of him. If Greg had been out, Greg Luganis had been out at the time he was diving in the 1970s and 80s, it's hard to imagine how he could have remained as a, as a competitive diver. Um, and certainly if he was out about having HIV, he wouldn't have been permitted to dive. Right. Well, and he certainly would have been excluded from participation in any of the Olympics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Boy, it's in the world. You really can look at how rapidly the world changed uh, based on their on their stories. And I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. So for a young person who picks up one of the stories today, either Greg Luganis or Rudy Galindo or Robbie Rogers, what do you hope they get out of reading those stories today? I think each of the three men offers um, a window into personal struggle and how they took that struggle, um, lived the struggle, and came through the other side to be whole people who lived openly and proudly. Each had a different path, each had a different struggle, but they all struggled. Um, You look at someone like Robbie Rogers, um, who's handsome, whose life seems to have gone well in every possible way, and then you read his book and you see he really struggled um, and finally found his way to a place in his life where he can be himself. And I think the lesson I took away, and I think readers take away from all three books, is that there is power in living your life as a whole human being. If you don't have to live with the burden of the closet of pretending to be someone else, you can apply all of that energy that you are using to keep the secret to do what you really want to do, Um, whether that's being a soccer player or a diver or whatever it is you're doing in life. Um, The the amount of energy it takes, and, and virtually any LGBTQ person can tell you this, or any person who keeps big secrets, that keeping a secret is an, is an energy suck. It takes away from the rest of your life. And once you can really be who you are, uh, you, um, you can be a better person and a happier person. Well, I couldn't agree with you more there. I think you're spot on. 
So uh, you wrote two books about LGBT history, two very significant volumes about history. And you said earlier that you really didn't know a lot about gay history, LGBT history before Stonewall. Talk about some of the research that you did and maybe what your favorite era was uh, to write about. Well, the biggest surprise was that there was history before Stonewall. Um, I didn't know until I started doing research for the proposal for the book that, that anything happened before 69. And it turns out there was a, a 19-year-old movement at that point. It, it was a small movement, but it was a national movement, and they even had national conferences. There were protests in front of the White House in 1965. I was astonished. I loved writing about the period before Stonewall. Um, for one thing, I didn't know it existed. For another, many of the people I interviewed had never been asked about their experiences. So I got to uncover a piece of history that people really didn't know about. The challenge for me in, in doing that original research was that there was very little out there. Um, John D'Amelio had written a book that covered uh, some of that time, but there was no timeline on Wikipedia to go to to lay out a book. So I had to create the timeline. I spent a lot of time at the... Um, the gay and lesbian, um, what are they called now? They're the GLBT, T histor uh, GLBT um, Historical Society in San Francisco. Right. Um, I spent a lot of time in their library going through every single edition of The Advocate to build a timeline. Um, I also went through, I don't remember how many copies of the Manachine Review and, and one magazine and the latter, just to build a timeline of all the things that happened and all the various people who were involved at the time. And a lot of the people who were involved in the pre-Stonewall movement didn't use real names because it was too dangerous to use your real name. Mm -hmm. So they used pseudonyms. So then the challenge is, how do you find a person named Lisa Ben, it's not her real name, um, uh, how do you even find out where in the country she lives? And Lisa Ben, it turns out, is Edith Ide, who, who wrote the first newsletter for lesbians, what we would call a zine today, which she typed on her office typewriter um, using five sheets of carbon paper, typed it through twice in 1947. Wow. Um, and I eventually found her, but it took about 26 phone calls to find her. Um, Holy cow. She lived in Burbank, California. So this is all pre-internet. Uh, so I made a lot of phone calls, wrote a lot of letters, um, and people referred me to people. Mm. So I had to create this, this web that didn't exist. Um, it was thrilling and terrifying. And I thought, how am I ever going to get this done? And I only had two years. I took two and a half in the end to, to write the first book. Um, and it was a monumental project that I couldn't imagine reproducing now. And I couldn't. I couldn't because so many of the people I interviewed died actually within a short time after I interviewed them in the early 90s. I'm sorry, in the late 80s and early 90s. Well, there aren't really a lot of good sources for LGBT history out there. Um, fortunately, here in California, we're going to begin to start teaching some of the contributions of LGBT people in history in the K-12 system. But that's a new thing, and it's very unique in the country. As you think about students in the K-12 system today, based on what you wrote, what are some of the things you think are most important for them to know about LGBT history? I think it's very important that the history, that LGBT history be integrated into the curriculum. So you're not just taking a course on gay history because LGBT people have been involved in, in all kinds of things like Baird Rustin, who was deeply, who was a key figure in the, in the black civil rights movement who was gay. And I learned about Baird Rustin in school. I didn't know he was gay. I didn't know about the problems that he encountered because he was gay or, uh, I mean, these were dramatic stories that, that I didn't hear about. 
um, so I think uh, ideally over time these stories will be integrated into American history and social studies classes and to that end I'm working with a wonderful nonprofit organization under contract to the New York City Department of Education um, it's an organization called History Unerased to create um, 8th grade and 11th grade social studies and American history curricula uh, that incorporates LGBT history and we're providing um, through my podcast we're providing audio content for those lessons. So my hope is that that before long, kids will get through uh, middle school and high school um, knowing more than just there was something called the Stonewall Uprising and something called the AIDS Quilt, if they get that much. Uh, the problem now is that there's so little taught, and it's not taught in context, that all students are graduating without this knowledge. Um, and here we are telling LGBTQ young people, you should be proud of who you are, um, go on with your life and be a whole and open person. And we're telling uh, straight kids they should be accepting, but we're not telling them anything about the things that would help them understand why they why the world is the way it is and why gay people are the way they are it's it's you can't understand where you're going unless you know where you've been and so much of that history has to be taught yeah yeah absolutely well let's talk about those podcasts uh, you know it's one thing to read about history in printed word and from a textbook, but quite another to hear it told through the actual voice of the person who lived that history. And you were able to capture their voice uh, through your interviews and now make it available to young people. Talk about the website you've created and what's going on with it. Sure. It, it's, I find it extraordinary hearing these voices for the first time in 30 years. Um, I had forgotten how powerful the actual voices were. I had to translate those voices into print for the book, and now I have the privilege to turn those stories back into the actual voices and let the people who I interview tell their stories in their own voices. And I'm not at all a spiritual person, but there are times when I feel like the people I interviewed who, tr- who entrusted their stories to me were determined to tell their stories themselves in their own voices. And they got me to do this um, and got me fired from my job in 2015 so that I had to figure out what to do next and called the New York Public Library, which had my whole collection, and say, have you finished digitizing it yet? And they said yes, and then I had a series of conversations over a period of months that led to creating the podcast. Um, So we have produced a total of about 33 episodes over the course of three seasons. Uh, We have been downloaded, our episodes have been downloaded 1.7 million times in 208 countries and territories around the world, which is extraordinary to me. Uh, So it's gotten far wider um, distribution than I could have have ever imagined. We've been very fortunate with with, uh, foundation support from the Arcus Foundation, from the Ford Foundation, and most recently from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation in Oakland, California, which has Mm -hmm. given us a significant grant and challenge grant to produce a fourth season of the podcast, which will be coming in the fall, uh, this coming fall, uh, in time for LGBT History Month. Incredible. Yeah, it's just, and the, the emails that I get from young people, from old people, from straight people, from gay people about what these stories mean to them, um, and it just blows me away every day. Yeah, no, I bet. And, and I can tell you, again, it's an amazing classroom tool. It's one thing to read about these people or to hear a recount of their stories, but to hear their stories in their own voices uh, it's it's really quite extraordinary for students. As you think about some of the people that you've talked to over the years, who are the ones that really stand out to you? Two. Uh, I mean, there are a lot, and I, I I love almost everybody. 
um, you, you'll hear in the podcast. Um, and I should tell you that the podcast is available in, in two ways. I designed it for people like me who are older, who don't subscribe or download podcasts typically, and for everybody else. So you can go to the website at makinggayhistory.com. Everything is there. Um, and you can listen right on the website. And when you put your cursor on the photo for each episode, it flips over and says, read more. And you click on that, and you get a whole page of information with links to more articles. And there, I also include archival photos. So I wanted people, especially students, to have the opportunity to dig deeper if they wanted. If you want to subscribe, you can subscribe as you can to any podcast through every possible uh, um, podcast player that you can imagine. So it's you can find it. It's, it's, it's impossible to miss. Um, but two of my favorites um, you'll find in the first season of the podcast, Lisa Ben, um, real name Edith Hyde. And if you play uh, word games, you'll know that Lisa Ben spells lesbian. Oh, uh, it clever. Was, uh, yeah, it was the pseudonym she took when she wrote for the latter, the lesbian magazine that was published by the Daughters of Belitis beginning in the 1950s. Um, she had wanted to use the pseudonym Ima Spinster, um, but she said they didn't think that was funny, so she chose lesbian instead. I'm sorry, Lisa Ben instead, which spells lesbian. Um, Edith Hyde, Lisa Ben, was one of my absolute favorites, in part because what she did was so extraordinary in publishing this magazine, in which she wrote an essay predicting that the world would be as it is now, if you can imagine, in 1947, that she predicted this. Mm. Um, and she also sang... Uh, parodies of popular songs and her own songs in gay clubs in the 1950s and 60s because she thought that the entertainment in the gay clubs in those days, which often played to the straight people who were allowed, in the, allowed into the clubs in the evening to watch the girls dance, um, she felt that that entertainment was often demeaning, so she created her own entertainment. So you can listen on my podcast to Edith Ide um, singing her songs. We have a bonus episode called Edith Ide's Gay Gals Mixtape. She called herself a gay gal. Wow. Well, we have that original interview that you did with her, and let's play a little bit of it so our listeners can get a sense of what they can expect from these great podcasts. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is the Making Gay History Podcast. In our third episode, you'll meet Edith Ide, whose pen name was Lisa Ben. Back in the 1950s, a lot of people who got involved in the movement didn't use their real names, because if you were found out, you could lose your job and even lose your family. So Edith's story starts even before that, in 1947, when she published what she called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine. And really, it was a newsletter for lesbians. She typed it on her office typewriter at RKO Pictures, where she was a young secretary. Her boss told her she should look busy, uh, but not knit and not read. So what do you do? You write a newsletter for lesbians in 1947 and give them out to your friends. But before she could tell me her story, I had to find her. And all I had to go on was her pen name and that she lived in California. So it took me three months and 26 phone calls to find her. This is pre-internet, so there was no choice. And on the 26th phone call, she answered. So not long after, I was sitting with Edith on her enclosed porch with two of her 13 cats. She'd bought the house with money from years of working as a secretary. She hated working as a secretary. I'd read that Edith was well-known in the 50s for singing parodies of popular songs in Los Angeles gay clubs. She wrote her own lyrics as a protest against the demeaning jokes gay entertainers told for the benefit of straights. And if you can imagine, the straights would show up at the clubs in the evening to see how the other half lived, and they'd stand in the back. So I asked Edith if she could sing a few songs for me. So here she is, Edith Ide, live from the front porch of her Burbank bungalow. 
you can't not smile. Uh, I'm off now? You're on. Oh, I'm on? You can test and I'll just... Oh, okay. You're ready to warm up. Yeah, I need to warm up a little bit. I should tune up a little bit first. Hello, young lovers, whatever you are. I hope your problems are few. All you cute butchers lined up at the bar. I've had a love like you. I knew the way I felt, but I didn't know how to go about finding someone else that was that way. And there was just no no way to find out in those days. You know, everything was pretty closed uh, about things like that. I wrote vice versa mainly to keep myself company because I thought, although I don't know any gay gals now, By the time I finish a couple of these magazines, I'm sure I will. I was such a little optimist. And then I'll hand the magazines out for free. I never charged for them. Mm -hmm. I felt that that would be wrong. But uh, it was just some writing that I wanted to do to get it off my chest. And I was a very lonely person. And I could sort of fantasize this way by uh, writing the magazine, you see. And uh, so that's the way the magazine was. And I put in five copies at a time with carbon paper. And I rolled it through twice. So that made ten copies of vice versa. And that's all I could all I could manage. You see, there were no duplicating machines in those days. I would also say to them, as I, to, to the girls, as I passed the magazines out, I said, now when you get through with this, don't throw it away. Pass it on to another another gay gal. We didn't use the term lesbian so much then. We just said gay gal. Mm-hmm. And I said, in that way, although uh, it, it will pass from friend to friend, and uh, it's not dated material, so it will never get stale. I mean, they're just fiction and poetry and that sort of thing, book reports and things of that nature. There were very few books around at the time, but I wrote a book review on Well of Loneliness and uh, a couple of other ones I can't remember. And then if there were any movies around that had the slightest tinge of two girls being interested in one another or something, I would take that story within the movie and play it up and say, oh, such and such a movie has a scene in it with two two, uh, young ladies and uh, they seem to be interested in one another or something like that. And I would would, uh, play it up. And then I wrote poetry, not a great deal of it, but a few things. Mm -hmm. And uh, then... uh, Oh, I'd write the the end, the what the whatchamacallum, and that was just ideas that happened off the top of my head that I would write about and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, or uh, you know, I'd just sort of uh, uh, fantasize about not not fantasize exactly, but imagine imagine. Thank you. Um, uh, about how things might be in the future with us. It was sort of a light thing, a frivolous thing. It wasn't. Uh, anything of great merit, I don't think, but it was just to round out the magazine because I was getting awfully scarce on material. What were some of the things you imagined? 
Well, I imagine that perhaps we would have a lot of magazines (laughs) and that perhaps even movies might be made about us. And uh, I would hope that someday we would not be looked down on with so much disdain and uh, things of that nature. Well, I think this may be where you, this is the column, this is the article, Here to Stay. It says, whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, it looks as though the third sex is here to stay. Yeah, that's the one. Would, shall I read that or would you prefer to read it uh, onto the tape? Because I'd like to read it onto the tape. So, okay, okay. go ahead. September 1947, Volume 1, Number 4. Whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, it looks as though the third sex is here to stay. With the advancement of psychiatry and related subjects, the world is becoming more and more aware that there are those in our midst who feel no attraction for the opposite sex. It is not an uncommon sight to observe mannishly attired women, or even those dressed in more feminine garb, strolling along the street hand in hand, or even arm in arm, in an attitude which certainly would seem to indicate far more than mere friendliness. Homosexuality is becoming less and less a taboo subject, and although still considered by the general public as contemptible or treated with derision, I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folk will be accepted as part of regular society. Just as certain subjects, once considered unfit for discussion, now are used as themes in many of our motion pictures, I believe that the time will come when, say, Stephen Gordon will step unrestrained from the pages of Radcliffe Hall's admirable novel, Well of Loneliness, onto the silver screen. And once precedent has been broken by one such motion picture, others will be sure to follow. Perhaps even vice versa might be the forerunner of better magazines dedicated to the third sex, which in some future time might take their rightful place on the newsstands beside other publications, to be available openly and without restriction to those who wish to read them. In these days of frozen foods, motion picture palaces, compact apartments, modern innovations, and female independence, there is no reason why a woman should have to look to a man for food and shelter in return for raising his children and keeping his house in order, unless she really wants to. Never before have circumstances and conditions been so suitable for those of lesbian tendencies. Wow, what a neat lady she was. I can see why you really enjoy talking with her. And it must have been incredible to hear her talk about life in that era. Also, it was such a window into a world that I didn't know from the 1940s and 50s. So to hear her tell these stories about her experiences was just, it was, uh, and I just loved her as a human being. She just was, was totally charming. Then a second person was um, Wendell Sayers, who's, who didn't let me use his real name in the book. I used Paul Phillips in the book. He was afraid, he was in his 80s when I interviewed him in Denver. He was afraid that word might get back to some cousins somewhere that he was gay, and, and he didn't want that to happen. He was the first black uh, attorney to work for the um, state attorney general in Colorado. And uh, while his involvement in the movement was pretty minimal, the fact of his being involved in any way, shape, or form was so extraordinary for a gay black attorney in Denver in the 1950s. But his story went all the way back to 1920 when he talked about being sent to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, They drove from western Kansas because his father thought he was gay and wanted him to be diagnosed as a homosexual or not. Um, so he talks about the experience of being diagnosed as a homosexual in 1920. Wow. And also of driving from western Kansas to Rochester, Minnesota, and having to camp on the side of the road in a tent with his mother because they were black and not allowed to stay in any hotels. Mm. 
Um, and when I left his house, one of the reasons I remember him so vividly is when I left his house, I was standing on the steps and he said, do you think it's too late for me to meet someone? He said, you know, it's too late for sex, he said, but just for companionship. And that was something I found among a lot of the older people I interviewed was this, this, this extreme isolation. Um, when Lisa Ben died, um, Edith I died a couple of years ago, she was 95 or 96, there wasn't a single obituary about her anywhere. So that many of the people from the early movement had been forgot, long forgotten, um, or their stories were so small they weren't told, like, like uh, Wendell Sayers' story. So with, with both um, Edith Ide and Wendell Sayers, I got to tell their stories first in my book, and now they get to tell their stories in their own voices in the podcast. They don't tell the whole story because each interview lasted two, three hours, uh, some of them as long as six hours. But what my executive producer and I do is we pull out what we think is, is most important and most compelling and create a 15-minute segment, um, which we set then in the context of my introduction and conclusion, so that each person who we feature in the podcast gets to tell a story. Mm, yeah. It's almost like a little mini Smithsonian Institute for LGBT history. It feels that way, and I didn't. I I must have thought then, uh, thirty years ago, when I started on the book. This it is thirty years. Um, I must have thought then that these stories would have significance in the future because I asked my boss at CBS, who had been at NPR, who created Morning Ed- helped create Morning Edition and Weekend Edition, a man named Jay Kernis, who's now at CBS Sunday Morning. I asked him at the time, "What do your colleagues at NPR use to record interviews?" Um, and I bought what they used at NPR and also bought the most expensive uh, cassette tapes that I could uh, that were available. So I wound up with this collection of broadcast quality interviews, um, many of which are extremely rare interviews with people who are no longer alive. So I thank my 30-year-old self every day that I, that I did that. And I, don't, I can't say I can put myself back in that place, but I'm just guessing that I must have thought these stories would have value. Well, that they do. There's no doubt about that. And I can see just so many tremendous uses for them moving uh, forward in the future. And, you know, LGBT studies programs, as we've talked about, that are beginning to emerge around the country. Well, you've done so much. I mean, you've written about so many different topics, and now you have this amazing uh, podcasting program uh, on the web. What's next for you? Um, well, I'm working on a few other things. I, sometimes I think I'm out of my mind and that, that this is the stage of life when people start to, to um, pull back. Um, and I'm doing just the opposite, which, which is fine with me. Um, uh, I'm in conversations with um, um, a really talented playwright and director about using the archive to create a play. Um, along the lines of the Laramie Project, which uses archival interviews um, interviews right. to make a play. So there's that. I'm working with um, the two people who made the Greg Luganis HBO documentary. We're working on a short film on the making of the Stonewall National Monument. Um, I'm also working with several dozen organizations, primarily here in New York, um, on plans for the Stonewall 50 celebrations in 2019. So I've got a, a few things going on. Um, something very exciting on the horizon is I'm, I'm possibly going to Berlin for the 150th birthday of Magnus Hirschfeld, wow. who, who founded, um, as your, some of your listeners may know, um, what, what is considered the first gay rights organization in Germany in the early 20th century, and his work goes back to the 19th century. 
So that's coming up um, next month, um, and um, and the next year it's the 100th anniversary since he founded his institute in uh, in Berlin. Yeah, those are two big milestones coming up. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have lived long enough to to be here for these milestones. Well, yes, and being part of making those milestones visible, those pieces of history that, if it weren't for people like you, would have disappeared by now. You know, I have I have to really credit Rick Cott, who was then working at Harper and Row, my editor. It was his idea to do this book, um, and if not for him, there wouldn't have been these interviews. But he believed in it at the time, and at a time when other people didn't even think to to propose such a book. So I am ever grateful to him for for offering me this opportunity and the challenge, because it certainly was a challenge for someone with my background to write a history book. I had really no, um, I didn't have the experience that that one really should have, but apparently it didn't get in the way. No, they're both really terrific books, as are the rest of your works. Uh, definitely worth reading. So tell our listeners again where they can go to hear the podcasts and where they can go to follow you. Um, makinggayhistory.com is the website for the podcast. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Making Gay History Podcast, um, on Twitter at Making Gay History, spelled incorrectly because there weren't there aren't enough, there wasn't enough space for, for the word history. Um, we're also on Tumblr and on Facebook, um, so we are available everywhere. Fantastic. And if you miss those websites, we'll have links to all of them on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with Eric Marcus, a truly accomplished author and historian and now web podcast master. Eric, thanks so much for being with us and congratulations on all of your accomplishments. Thanks so much, Greg. Really appreciated being on your show. You heard Eric mention that 2019 will mark the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, the event we honor during Pride celebrations like the ones happening this month. We're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall throughout 2019 with four special Outbeat Extra shows that will feature some of Eric Marcus's interviews. They will air on the fifth Sunday of the month throughout 2019 when those fifth Sundays happen. And we invite you to celebrate this milestone with us throughout the coming year. For now, though, this wraps up our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCBFM Radio 91. In the meantime, happy Pride, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Sonoma West Publishers, bringing you the Sonoma West Times and News, the Healdsburg Tribune, Cloverdale Reveille, and the Windsor Times, providing independent journalism and local community conversations in print, 
and online at SonomaWest.com. You're listening to Radio 91, 91.1 KRCB FM Windsor and 90.9 K215CQ Santa Rosa. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. 